0: When Ben Aitken learned that his father had taken a four-night vacation marketed to seniors that included three-course meals, plenty of beer, and daily excursions, all for about a hundred pounds, he signed himself up six times. Ben Aitken joins us today to talk about his book, The Grand Tour, which documents his experiences traveling with elders. We also talk about the genre of travel writing, the Shakespeare and Company bookstore in Paris, and the importance of spending time with our elders. So now, here is Ben Aitken. Ben, welcome to the podcast.
1: Good good to be here, Jeremy.
0: So you are the author of two books, Dear Bill Bryson, Footnotes from a Small Island, and A Chip Shop in Poznan. And now you're back with number three, The Grand Tour Travels with My Elders. Um, The grand tour, the the grand part is a play. It's a play from the grand tour, the historic tour that aristocrats went on in Europe. And this one is about grannies, grandparents, uh, the elder community. Tell us a little bit about this new book.
1: Well, we can talk about the title for a little bit longer. You know, it's a tricky one because most people hear the grand tour
0: Obviously, Mm -hmm. and
1: I don't know if you get the TV show, which is all about cars and stuff in the in the US, but there's a massive one over here called the Grand Tour. And so, if you if you search for the Grand Tour, you end up with with 100 pictures of uh, you know powerful vehicles rather than elderly people on the beach, which was more my focus. Uh, But yeah, you were right to pick up on that reference to the Grand Tour, which is what these these young men traditionally you know the women weren't mm-hmm. allowed to go on such tours the young men of uh, aristocratic europe would uh, be sent around rome and vienna and and uh, london uh, to educate themselves so it was a, you know a referencing that that process of formation and education uh whilst uh, indicating that it's going to be with my elders rather than with classical paintings and whatnot
0: just to give us to put more uh, meat on that so you are essentially kind of traveling around um europe really but mostly in the united kingdom with elderly people like how, do, how does how does that work for us uh you you re- you reference uh, sharing tours and for Americans that might not mean anything but can you like paint a picture of how that Operated like, how of course, did you go yeah, of the you, yeah,
1: of course, you might not have an equivalent holiday provider in the US. I don't know, but in here in the UK, there's a company called Shearings and they specialize in coach holidays for people that are retired. You don't have to be retired to go on them, but 99.9% of people that do go on them are retired. So, I was enjoying six coach holidays around the uk and ireland and italy with people twice and thrice my age and they tend to be quite organized and regimented uh holidays so you know what time the entertainment starts you know what time you're playing bingo you know what time you're going on an excursion to the castle that cromwell uh, demolished in this in the 17th century etc so it was a strange experience to me i'm used to backpacking i'm used to Traveling, sort of off the cuff and on a whim, and it was yeah an unusual undertaking. The motivation was uh, principally to spend more time with people older than me and and talk to them and see if I could learn a thing or two about about life, about death, about grief, about bingo, about anything really. And uh, <laughs> the, the the grand tour is uh, you know recounting those six holidays and uh, the various nuggets of wisdom that I picked up along the way.
0: Yeah, so it's coming full circle to this idea of education that you uh, brought up earlier, that you wanted to learn from them, how did you uh, get the idea to travel with your elders, our elders, uh, in such a way?
1: Two things, I suppose. I've always got on well with my grandparents, and they've always furnished me with bits of information and knowledge, and I've enjoyed their senses of humour, as well. And then my dad let me know about a holiday he'd been on to the southwest of England. He'd had four nights in a coastal hotel. He'd had a free course dinner each evening. He had a cook breakfast each morning. He'd had excursions to here and there. He'd had 16 pints of lager each evening, <laughs> entertainment, bingo, return coach travel, all for about a hundred pounds. So what's that in dollars? 150? I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I was just, I was just taking Aback by this astonishing value for money, and so that motivation, <laughs> the, the the quest for value, in coupled with the quest for some some knowledge and to escape my millennial cohort, you know that's what sort of propelled me on this grand tour.
0: Anybody who reads this book, you'll you know understand or get the sense that you know some of these. Our elders are not as boring as as they may seem uh, on the surface, and they they like to get down and they like to party, <laughs> right? Why why do you think? Um, somewhere in the book, you you mentioned that elders have more to offer than you know the millennial cohort. What do you think they have to offer, and why do you think that is? Is it experience, or
1: I think it comes down to experience. Yeah, there's more grist in their meals. They've been through. Uh, experiences that i haven't yet including harsh experience you know losing loved ones losing parents losing sometimes children and, and siblings and and dear friends and not mm-hmm. to mention you know you know quite seismic political upheavals and even in some cases you know world wars um so all sorts of things and and less specifically i think as you Grow older, you your, your personality adjusts, your expectations of life adjust. I think maybe you become less self-important, mm. more humble. There are always exceptions, of course. You'll get people in their nineties that are incredibly self-important and not humble at all. But for the most part, and there's a there's a lack of self-consciousness and maybe a willingness to look on the bright side and enjoy life because the sense is there that this isn't going to last forever. And that sense is a lot keener than, you know, the later you are in your allotted time on earth. Uh, I think people of our age and, and younger, there's a natural complacency about being alive and, and what we're doing, you know, working and aspiring to owning property and going on nice holidays and, yeah, there's a, as I say, a natural complacency, and, and that's not to uh, disparage anybody of, of you know, uh, my age and and doing such things. But um, I would like to underline the the idea that by spending time with people older than you, you you know, you might be nudged to think differently. You might be pushed in a, a different direction. Uh, yeah, so there's there's a there's a call to there's a call to one's elders in this book and. Uh, it doesn't have to be a holiday you don't have to spend five days with uh, people in their 80s it could just be a, an awareness as you're out and about living your daily life whether you're at the bus stop on on the subway you know walking down the street on a park bench no just lean across now and again and ask someone who's evidently 98 what they do for what they do for a living you know it will at least break the ice and you might have a, a decent chat
0: mhm yeah this is i think a point that uh, uh, Paul Thru recently made in his um, in his newest book uh, the the Mexico book he says something about you know being in the United States you know being an elder um, is somewhat invisible like he can go through his day and just be this invisible person but as soon as he went off into Mexico um, he was more respected because of his age it's something that perhaps we see um, also in Europe as we see in the United States this idea that the, the older generation, they're, they're ignored. Um, they're cast aside as if, you know, they don't matter anymore. And I think that's mm, a, yeah. a, a nice, uh, nice point that you're raising is, you know, to, to, to pay more, more attention to these people that help well, build the world in which we live.
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, you could, you could ask somebody to pay more attention to all people. There's a, a growing tendency to be slightly navel gazing and have your your head in your head in your phone and um your head in the sand and not be exoteric and looking out to the public and the people but uh, when it comes to people of an advanced stage or you know in the, the the final third of life there must be a sense that they feel a little bit uh You know, invisible. Yeah, as Paul Farouz suggested, why that might be, um, I can only speculate. Um, Obviously, there are people are living longer, so people of uh, an older age are less are less rare. You know, they're less Mm. they're they're more they're more it's more common to be of an advanced age, so there's not the 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 same status and cachet attached to that that longevity and. I suppose the technology uh, revolution as well. You know, you've got digital natives on one side and digital immigrants on the other, and that might uh, make this generation gap a little bit larger and a little bit wider. Um, but yeah, these are just speculations. I think the, the the key thing is that we could all and yeah, I talk to myself uh, right now. We could all be better at uh, be embracing others of uh, any age, color ilk, whatever, um, whether in a very small, uh, casual way, uh, mm-hmm. or in deeper, meaningful ways. I've just moved in with uh, a lady that's 84, so my, my new flatmate is 84, and this is part of an initiative in the UK to match um, sort of millennials or younger people that can't afford the rents in, in London with people that have got more rooms than they need, but they could do with some company and a, a bit of a hand in the garden or in the kitchen now and again. So I think that's a great initiative.
0: Mhm. Yeah, well, 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 well spoken. Well said, uh, especially this idea of the the human uh, connection uh, irrespective of categories and labels. Was was anything surprising? Did you learn anything from your trip with your your trips with uh, your elders?
1: I it's difficult to put your finger on exactly what I uh-huh. learned. There weren't sort of like educational outcomes that you can <laughs> identify when you're at when you're at college or at university It's you know the, the the idiom I like to use is there's more grist in the mill you know I feel like I've uh, inherited some of their tidbits and nuggets of uh, of wisdom and thinking I can give a couple of examples um uh, of those sort of odd awkward learnings uh one was in Cornwall which is in the southwest of England I met a guy there called Mick who was in his eighties and this was in the middle of winter. And yet he was always in shorts, whether it was minus six degrees outside or whatever. And I eventually one evening asked him, you know, what's this about the shorts? And he admitted that he's not worn anything but shorts since he was 26. So that's about 60 years. And I asked him why, and he looked at me as if nobody had asked him that before and gave it some serious thought and said, I just find them easier to put on. And that caused me to reflect on on the, the philosophy the sort of everyday philosophy of people uh, people's lives and, and undertakings you know a pure you know pragmatist if he wants to do something if it's functional if it makes sense to him he'll do it. there's no there's no pandering to trends or, or fashions or the emperor's new clothes for Mick. You know he'll he'll stick his shorts on because it's easier to do so. So it's you know small things like that that you pick up along the way and yeah they're amusing and they're curious and they're they're daft. But I think they all add up to something in the end. I'm not quite sure what that something is yet. I'm still sort of digesting the things that I learned uh, on the holidays. But I think I think I think I'm better for them definitely.
0: Yeah, this reminds me to a point that you were raising just a few moments ago um, about this muddy middle age in which uh, you and I are in, um, and, and then we we reflect back on your childhood, and you know we gaze out into the future for you know being elders, and it seems that uh, bookending this muddy middle of mid age, you know there's a simplicity and an on- honesty and a kind of a being true to life that we don't get in the middle and you know the wisdom that Mick said in Cornwall uh, seems to be the same sort of simplistic um, but profound wisdom that uh, young young people say and children say you know they're just kind of honest and, and and true without any sort of irony or posing to be deeper than it really is if that makes any sense
1: No oh, it makes perfect sense uh, it was either Shakespeare or Madonna who said that you know uh, our later years were a second childhood Um, and I think there's definitely something in that and yet we're we're led to believe that during our middle years maybe 20 to 50 60 that's when we do our our growing our learning our forming but perhaps our discovering of ourselves but perhaps we were always ourselves you know and we were Mm -hmm. most ourselves when in those first years and then we rediscover that in later life i don't know i'm i'm just this is just conjecture but i can definitely relate to what you're saying about you know the later the later years being like a second childhood where you're you're more willful and you're more honest and you're more curious and you're less less bashful and timid and you're you're driven by different things you're not driven by a career anymore Mm-hmm. Uh, well, few, few people are anyway. They're, they're in a position of being retired and you're, there's less things pressing upon you directly. You don't have to meet the mortgage payments. You don't have to raise the money to get married. You don't have to replace the, the car. You don't have to get the kids into college. There's an opportunity in our later life to sort of almost relax again and find ourselves again and that's why now having spent so much time with my elders the last year, I I sort of fear that stage of life much less because I admit that I I did. I was a bit of a Peter Pan character and I, I didn't want to grow up because it didn't look good up there. Uh, I told people I was 29 for about four years, even though I was advancing <laughs> at the same rate. Uh, but I think that I've lost some of that anxiety about, aging now, having spent time with people that are aged, if that makes sense. And that's a mm-hmm. nice outcome for for me as a travel writer, uh, as a person, to go through uh, a, a travel experience and go through the writing of a book and come out fearing getting old less. Yeah, you know, that's a nice outcome.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned uh, uh, travel writing. Uh, how did you get involved in writing travel books? Yeah.
1: Uh, Hmm, it's a tricky one. I first wrote about travel when I was 18. And that's when I went on my first kind of big trip abroad. I went to Australia before going to university. And I just kept a I I just kept a diary. And that was the first time I'd kept a diary. That's the first time I'd voluntarily written things. Up to that point, it was at the behest of my <laughs> teacher's and my parents, you, know, you must write that essay, that assignment, this, that, or the other. Uh, and I, I i didn't I didn't detest that task of writing and sitting and thinking and reflecting and finding words and sentences and phrases to describe and account for my time in this different place. Uh, that was the first sort of, you know, step into the the genre of travel writing, and then it became more. Uh, I still know, serious, uh, perhaps when when I was about 29, I, I was struggling to write a play. I'd written two plays for the theatre by this point, and I was struggling to write the third one. And I gave up trying to write it, and I picked up Bill Bryson's book, Notes from a Small Island. I read it for the second time, loved it again, and I thought, I'm just going to go and follow this. I didn't have a travel book in mind. I just had a two-month break from everything in mind, and I went to the same hotels. I went, ate the same food. I considered the same things. I spent the same amount of time in the bath, etc. And you know, tried to uh, retrace and mimic Bill Bryson's experience in the UK as much as possible. And as I was keeping my journey uh, journal about during this experience and this travel, uh, I felt that the, the words were sort of, uh, amassing and they were taking on a certain character and I thought, well, why not try and write a book about this? But I was too terrified to approach agents or publishers at that stage. So I didn't, uh, I just went down the self publishing route. I ran a Kickstarter campaign. I don't know if you have the same platform in the U S Yeah, we but, do. We do. Okay. So I raised some money. And published the book, sent it out to the people that backed me, which was about three hundred, and also made it available as an ebook, and put that on um, online. And uh, that gave me some confidence. You know, some people hated it because it wasn't Bill Bryson. They wanted it to be just like Bill Bryson, and it wasn't. You know, we write very differently. We think very differently. Um, Some people enjoyed it, and that gave me some encouragement. And I I then moved to then moved to Poland. You know, every travel writer needs to think of things to write about. Uh, in an ideal world, these these uh, these projects and undertakings would happen sort of organically and wholesomely. But there's a there's, you sometimes you've just got to sit down with a pen and paper and think. You know, what do people want to read? What do I want to write? You know, where's the perfect Venn diagram where the two things overlap? And I decided that I'd go and live in Poland for a year. Um, to be a sort of reverse immigrant at the time, uh, there were a lot of Polish people moving to the UK, taking advantage of their freedom of, of movement within the European Union. And Polish is now the second language in the UK. So I wow. wanted to go the opposite direction and live in Poland and be a fish out of water and be an immigrant and and write about that experience of dislocation and and being abroad. And I ended up working in a fish and chip shop of all things in Poland. And that's why the book's called A Chip Shop in Poznan, which is the city in the west of Poland where I lived for a year. So that was the second undertaking. And once I'd written that book, which took a long time, believe me, because I, was, uh, I had no editor or publisher, you know, whipping me, uh, trying to tell me to hurry up or whatever. So I, I ended up with you know a first draft which was about 650,000 words long which i believe is wow. about 10 times the length of uh, any decent cookbook um, <laughs> and then i then i then i did that hard thing and i'm sure you've done it jeremy and, and lots of people listening would have done it of actually getting those proposals together and those inquiry letters and digging out the email addresses of the agents and and finding out which publishing houses accept unsolicited proposals. And I, you know, I did that thing, that terrifying thing of, of putting your work out there and, and and readying yourself for, you know, a flurry of rejections and whatnot. And I was I was lucky that a publisher in the UK called Icon, who do accept unsolicited proposals from from writers, which I think is excellent. I think every publisher should. And I was lucky that one of the editors there stumbled upon my proposed book title, which was Fifty Shades of Poland. (laughs) And they thought, well, that's suitably ridiculous. I'm going to read the, the email at least. And it wasn't at all. It turned out that the, the book itself wasn't at all kinky or sadomasochistic. But nonetheless, she'd opened the email and she was reading the first chapters. And so, if I if I, if I learned anything from that experience, it's make the subject of your unsolicited proposal as as mad and as uh, attention seeking as possible. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I like I like the story of the Bill Bryson one. Um, I, I haven't read that book. Um, But, you know, the story is nice because I think many writers kind of back away or they shy away from this idea of of self-publishing. But in your case, it seems to have opened uh, some doors or at least, you know, given you some sort of visibility or kind of accountability with writing and publishing and, and that experience there. Do you think that that helped you push the needle to ICON?
1: It definitely helped me. It definitely helped me because it just got the hand moving. It got me used to, to writing about travel in book form and to book length. And it gave me a sense of seriousness about what I was doing, even if I had no intention of putting it out there to agents. First task is to take yourself seriously. And I think as soon as you sit down and try and write 500 pages about two months of travel and then refine that and hone that down to 300 as soon as you do that you're taking yourself seriously and you're taking your take on on travel and place and people and life seriously and I think that that experience for dear Bill Bryson was certainly formative and it led into the 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 next experience which was living in Poland and the and the willingness to write about that as well, and that second time I plucked up the courage uh, to to put it out there, yeah, and good. it shouldn't have ta- it. It should not have taken courage. I wish I could have told myself this, you know, three or four years ago. It shouldn't have taken courage because a rejection is not a ref- uh, it's not a judgment on the merit of the book. It's just not. Having had some candid conversations with my ad- editor in the last two years, and with my agent you know, when they are considering proposals about the sixth or seventh thing on their list of considerations is the actual quality of the writing, you know, mm. higher, higher up on the list is, you know, Money. can we sell that? Can we sell this? Um, uh, and if you, if you fully accept that to be true, then you, you understand that rejections aren't, uh, a judgment on your quality or worth as a writer. And that makes them easier to, to bear, I think.
0: That's a good point. Uh, in this in this travel writing journey of yours, um, where did Shakespeare and Company fit in?
1: Shakespeare, you know the bookshop in Paris, do you? Yeah, yeah. So, um, where did that? What happened there? I went there. This was after having done the travel for dear Bill Bryson. So I've taken notes from a small island. I've retraced the journey. I've got all of the the raw material, the six notebooks I came back with. And I think, right, okay, I'm going to have to write this up. And I went about doing that writing up in between working. So I was working uh, full time and I was doing this in the, in the spare time. And I went to Paris for a weekend. I was supposed to go with my girlfriend, but we broke up just before. So it was a very romantic weekend on my own and I walked into this book sh- bookshop and it was very charming and different and got talking to one of the booksellers and I told him that I was working on this odd travel book, you know, completely unoriginal derivative travel book about Bill Bryson and he told me about this scheme that they have an initiative called tumbleweeding and if you're a book lover or you're working on something or you're a poet or what have you you can stay in the bookshop, you know, can sleep on, on the floor on a mattress next to the science fiction shelves all for free, you know, up for, you know, for up to two or three months or whatever. And it's, this has been going on for 50 years. So I, I, I didn't go back to London. Um, I sort of quit quit the job and I thought I've got about 700 pounds, a thousand dollars. So I'm going to stay here and see if I can finish this book. Um, so that's what I did. So it was a, it was a really, Oh, yeah, inspiring place to be, an intimidating place to be. Everybody had read, you know, uh, a billion books by the time they were six months old. And that was kind of scary. Uh, But nonetheless, a nourishing place and a wonderful bookshop. I hope they're doing well now, despite what's going on. Uh, And about 18 months later, um, I did a reading at that bookshop at Shakespeare and Company, and I read the first chapter of Deal Bill Bryson. So that was a lovely. A lovely moment a lovely occasion and that's kudos to shakespeare and company because they do look after the people that stay with them it's not just some gimmick it's not some uh, you know marketing conceit they they really want to nurture writers so that once you've left their uh, left them they will keep an eye on you and they'll be responsive to your to, to, to when you let them know that you've got some work and you've finished and they, you know, they were kind enough to let me do a reading there. So uh, yeah, hats off to them. Uh, they have a place in my heart. The the owner's Sylvia. She inherited from her her father, George Whitman. And it's a really special place. It's right opposite Notre Dame. And anybody that finds themselves in Paris would be a fool not to pop in.
0: Just a quick note and we'll get right back to the episode. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting app, or consider supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at travelwritingworld.com/support. Thank you. I know some writers will kind of shy away from the label of travel writer uh, for some reason. Some of the writers who deal with you know writing about place you know, they say, well, I'm not a travel writer. I'm a, I'm interested in exploring place or what have you. Uh, do you see yourself as a travel writer? Do you have any uh, issues with that label? Or how would you describe yourself?
1: Yeah, that's a tricky one. Uh, I can understand why people, there's probably several reasons why people shy away from that tag. One, they probably just don't like tags anyway. Mm-hmm. Two, they might know that that tag doesn't sell very many books for one reason or another in the UK I don't know how it is in the states jeremy but the travel writing section in a bookshop is always in the the furthest darkest corner of the bookshop right so you, you're not going to get many people stumbling upon it it's as if they they the booksellers you know are conspiring so that the travel writing genre does you know does fail and and that obviously encourages publishers to say well you know we're not going to commission that travel book because they don't sell and it's a, like a vicious cycle it seems to me um great travel writing you know shouldn't be uh shouldn't be it shouldn't be pigeonholed because it's more than about travel it's it's about it's about everything that's why i love the genre you know the recognized the you know, certified genre that is travel writing i do, i love it because it can be everything. I remember reading Paul Furrier's "Kingdom by the Sea" and a book by J.B. Priestley, "English Journey," and uh, Bill Bryson. I, I you know looked at all of these these three different texts, and they seem to be just talking about life as well as place, people, everything, and in different tones and in different voices, and with elegance, and with verve, and with humour. And I loved it. I loved it. And I thought I was in, I was inclined to that type of writing because I was always a bit of a I don't know what you would say a a, a vagabond, a, a flaneur, somebody that wanted to just wander around and and watch and engage and listen and to think that you could just write about that and that can be taken seriously as literature. You know that really excited me. So I'm you know I'm happy to wear that badge as a travel writer you know, with a couple of caveats that, you know, the, that, that label probably doesn't do the genre justice. You know, the books on that shelf, the travel writing shelf, could probably sit just as comfortably and proudly on several other shelves in the bookshop. Um, it involves writing about place. It involves writing about lots of people. Um, but yeah, in sum, uh, in short, happy to wear the badge.
0: Yeah. In the United States, yeah, it sounds similar, you know, Travel writing section is next to the guidebooks, which is in the back corner next to spirituality <laughs> and, uh, and the small section back there. Um, but it seems uh, from this vantage point, you know, there's a, I guess a bigger interest in in writing about place and writing about you know the world and, and this kind of way, you know, that sla- sort of memoiry, um, but also involving history and you know politics, and then. You know those major topics. It seems like that in, there's a bigger interest of that uh, in in the United Kingdom than in the United States, for whatever reason.
1: Yeah, well, I can. Uh, I have to take your word for that one. Um, I read a brilliant book by a guy called Thomas Swick. I don't know if you know of him. He's a travel writer, and he wrote a brilliant book. I think it was called The Unquiet Days about his time in poland as an immigrant as an american uh, immigrant and adapting to that country but this was in the 80s and i found this by by chance in a secondhand bookshop and this was published in early 90s i believe and it, i was just struck by the the, the the confidence and elegance of the writing and and i wrote i wrote to thomas and you know we've been sharing emails since, and we you know we often moan about the the, the state of uh, publishing and you know the the fate of travel writing at the moment. And yeah, uh, I to reiterate, I think it's a, a fantastic, multifarious, colourful genre that which should probably get more attention than it does because it speaks to so many aspects of of, of life. It might not be as racy, it might not be as exciting or as gripping because we don't have those devices of that are available to other writers. We don't, we can't we can't fabricate really, we can't mm-hmm. characterize, we can't we well, we can characterize, but we can't invent, we can't, you know, we can't you plot so that we have you hang. We are there doing a quite ordinary you know, modestly brilliant thing, which is to look at life, look at people and write about it. And, you know, it's a bit of anthropology. It's a bit of sociology. There's some cod philosophy. There's some storytelling there. It's, that's why I love it because it's a mess of all of those different ways of writing and thinking. Um, yeah i i hope it i hope it you know so it survives and becomes healthier going forward and i don't know what it would take for that to happen because because people take photographs now on their phones and they're on instagram and information is available at so easily you know, the old style of writing about places that people had never been to is perhaps surplus to requirements. Now, what, what would it take now to, you know, revive the genre? Because, you know, you've probably read them every, every six months as a new article is travel writing dead. And the conclusion <laughs> is always amb- ambiguous or uncertain. Um, I'm not sure what are your thoughts on that about the, the genre Do, how, how does it does it need to adapt going forward, or is it is it good enough to survive as it is?
0: Well, I think that's one of the the beauties uh, of travel writing is that it's always in a constant state of adaptation and change. I mean, the travel writing uh, that's coming out today looks nothing like you know the golden age of travel writing. You know, it's much more complicated. I I, I suspect uh, than the travel writing of the nineteenth century or even earlier um so it's you know one of the beauties of it it's 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 hard to pin down it's hard to pinpoint exactly what this is because it is chameleon like it it does adapt to the environment um and i, I don't know what's going to happen with this crisis um but i'm going to hedge the bets against um you know travel writing i i think we're going to see this massive kind of outpouring of travel writing you know few years after this crisis ends, if it ever does, much like we saw back in the, you know, 19 teens, 19, early 1920s. Mm. I, well, I hope. <laughs>
1: yeah. You know, if, a, I'll, um, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that if you, if you are an aspiring travel writer or um, an existing one, You can always uh, try your best to anticipate what an editor might want at the moment, what a publisher might be interested in. There seems to be in the UK, in the newspapers, in the travel sections, although they're shrinking, there is an appetite now for stories about the UK, about what they're calling staycations, about Mm -hmm. unusual types of travel. And there's something oddly liberating and exciting about that shift because all of the articles aren't about travelling around the Greek islands anymore they're not all about taking a, a city break in Paris or Nice or or Siena they're about wild camping in 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 England they're all about taking night walks in London they're about wild swimming in the North Sea off the east coast of the United Kingdom so there's i think oddly there might be room for some uh, interesting stuff at the moment if you pitch you know pitch well pitch persuasively you know make it hard for them to refuse what you've what you've written make it hard for them to to refuse uh the idea that their readers would be interested in it and at the same time uh you know with, with publishers i'm thinking now about cruising because i've always been interested in cruising as a way of moving a way of holidaying a way of traveling uh some people hate it, some people love it. It's a Marmite issue. I'm not sure if you get Marmite out there, but you know, this is the something that we spread on toast and people either oh, love it or yes. hate it. Yes. And uh cruising's one of those and that industry is probably, you know, uh, it's probably struggling right now and it wouldn't mind an enterprising youngish writer getting on board for a few months and selling selling the mode of travel to their contemporaries. So there's in chaos, there's always opportunity. Uh, You've just got to, you need a keen eye to spot where the opportunities are and then Mm -hmm. perhaps a brave heart to pursue them. Yeah,
0: We're running a little bit short of time here. And, um, two things, uh, Wondering if you can let us know where we can find you online and connect with you there. And if you could, uh, lastly, read a short passage from your new book to close the episode out.
1: I'm not massively available online, I don't think. I, I'm on Twitter. I'm, I'm not the, the best tweeter. In the world, if you look at my feed, it's you'd probably fall asleep with boredom. But nonetheless, if you wanted to contact and uh, contact me and communicate, that's that's a good way. Ben Aitkin eighty five. So that's my name: B E N A I T K E N. It's a Scottish surname. Eighty five. That's not my age. That's uh, my year of birth. Um, <laughs> also, happens to be my weight in kilos at the moment. I Need to get that down. Uh, so that's Ben Aitkin eighty five at Twitter. That's probably the best way. Uh, I'm happy to give you a quick reading uh, from The Grand Tour Travels With My Elders, which is the book that came out in September 2020 with Icon Books. Shout out to them. They're great. I can offer you two things. One is an encounter with an American guy, Sean, in a bar in Ireland. Or I can give you uh, a paragraph about the time a lady threw her bra into George Clooney's garden. Which would you prefer, Jeremy?
0: Oh, gosh, this is an impossible decision uh, when you put it like that. Uh, Um, Okay,
1: I'll make it for you. Let's go for George Clooney.
0: Okay, good.
1: So a bit of context. uh, This was on a coach holiday to Lake Como in Italy, which was the fifth of the six coach holidays I went on with my elders. We'd been out for the day in the coach visiting this and that village in Italy, and the action starts here. So on our way back to the hotel, we stop outside George Clooney's house. Jill, who I've been sat next to for the last 10 days or so, is visibly and audibly excited. She even has a puff on her inhaler, and she's not alone in her excitement. The sight of Clooney's house has the entire coach spellbound, even the blokes. They're using their cameras to zoom in. Someone thinks the kitchen window's open. Someone can see a massive pepper grinder. Someone thinks they saw him through frosted glass, which means he was probably getting out of the shower. The very fort does something to Jill. I watch her inch closer to George's perimeter. I watch her look over her shoulder to make sure a few people are looking. And then I watch her remove her bra from under her blouse and fling it over the wall into George's garden. I ask her what she did that for. She shrugs her shoulders and says, well, I have plenty of others. And there you are. That is a a little insight into the sort of thing that I got up to on the grand tour. Yeah. A lady (laughs) flinging her bra into George Clooney's garden. I wonder if he ever found it.
0: Well, that's great. Thank you for taking the time to come on the show. And we wish you luck with this book. I believe it's coming out in the United States uh, next month, no? In November?
1: Uh, April, actually. Oh, in April. April. Okay. In April. Yeah, they were going to bring it out in November, but they've pushed it back to April. But the audio book and ebook are available now, as far as I understand.
0: Very good. Well, we'll put the links to those books in the show notes. Thank you again for coming on.
1: It's been a pleasure, Jeremy.
0: You can find the episode show notes and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at travelwritingworld.com slash support.